David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Now, in the first talk, just to remind us, whereas in the first two talks, I spoke about two centuries in each talk, five to seven hundred in the first one, seven to nine hundred in the second one, and since we define the Gaonic period pretty much as five, that period between 500 and 1000, so it means that tonight I'm going to focus on one century. But that doesn't mean that my task is any easier, or our task is any easier, because the 10th century is one of those centuries where there's a lot to talk about. So even though I'm only talking about one century, I'm actually thinking we're going to be a little bit challenged to get there tonight. But we're going to try. I'm going to cover what I think are the most important points and events and personalities that shape Jewish history of the 10th century and of course going forward, their impact on the future. There's a lot of people in the 10th century who really are game changers as far as Jewish history is concerned. There's maybe, and we need to look at them. So let's remind ourselves, however, of the world that we arrived at by the end of last week. Yeah? So, here's our Mediterranean. There's Spain. There's the water. Italy, Greece, Turkey, the land of Israel, Egypt, North Africa, and over here is Babylonia. This, of course, is Spain, or what's going to become Spain eventually. This is uh, what's going to become France, what's going to become Germany, and uh, England. Uh, we're not going to be talking about a lot tonight. Now, let's look at this world politically, and we know that certainly by the time we arrived at the end of last week, most, I mean, the centre of world Jewry is still mostly in Babylonia by the time we open this century. Not entirely anymore, but that's where the kind of the weight of things are culturally and intellectually. That's what the Gaonic period is about. And this part of the world, of course, everything I'm going to do here in green, this whole part of the world, what is it now, by the time we open up in 900, who's ruling this? It's the Abbasid Caliphate. And I explained last week that even though we're not expected to become experts or scholars in Islamic history, it's worth understanding this because things change according to the way international events unfold. This is the Abbasid Caliphate. And over here, over here, Spain is also Islamic, but it's not Abbasid. It's what? Umayyad. It's Umayyad. Because the Umayyads, when they got defeated by the Abbasids, came over here and formed their own thing, which at this stage is still an emirate, 
going on in Al-Andalus, which had been conquered in the early 700s. Yep, but by the time we get to 900, that becomes very established. So the first thing I want us to understand as a background to what I'm going to talk about tonight is throughout the early decades of the 900s, one Umayyad leader who becomes the Umayyad Emir of Andalus, or basically from his base in Cordova, in the south of Spain, he's really the Emir of Cordova, and by this time, Islamic Andalus has broken into a range of different powers, and you've got some even some small Christian kingdoms here. He goes on a quest of conquest and expansion. It takes him over a decade, but Abdulrahman III becomes not only an unbelievable ruler for the 10th century, but even in the entire history of Islamic politics, and I would say even on the level of world politics, he is one of the strongest and most amazing rulers. Wherever he would go, he would bring peace and stability, but also absolute order. And one by one, throughout the early parts of the 900s, particularly in the 920s, one by one, he conquered every city and town in Spain, and eventually, by around 929, Abdulrahman controlled all of Andalus, all of what we now call the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, Portugal, and declared himself Caliph. So we now have an Umayyad Caliphate here. And we're going to talk a little more, perhaps later, about the Cordovan Caliphate. We can't go into it in too much detail. We have to realize that in terms of what we're talking about tonight, it's a slight background issue. But it's very, very important because Abdulrahman was an extraordinarily tolerant ruler of other religions and set about, not accidentally, but as a deliberate project to turn Cordova into the absolute jewel of civilization of the Islamic world. He wanted it to rival Baghdad, to rival Constantinople in Byzantia, Byzantium, which is still here. He wanted it to rival Alexandria. He wanted it to rival any other city in the world, and he basically achieved that. He encouraged anyone, basically, who had a good idea, whether they were an architect, an engineer, a mathematician, a philosopher, an artist of any sort. And it didn't matter if you were Islamic or if you were Christian or if you were Jewish. Abdul Rahman created the conditions for a completely tolerant Islamic society that Jews really, really enjoyed. And unusually, unusually, Jews were even allowed to participate in political society itself. They were able to get positions in government. This would have been unheard of in other places. The Abbasid model was much more along the lines of controlling minorities 
and giving them autonomy, but not necessarily allowing them into the corridors of power, they have their own little power structures which are all subordinate to the caliph. That's why, for example, I mean, the Abbasid Caliphate would give all of that authority to the Resh Galuta, and he, he didn't want to know any more about it. He assumed that the Resh Galuta had his Jews under control. But Abdul Rahman's Cordovan Caliphate was different, and Jews were starting to participate in the processes of government. When Abdul Rahman died in 961, he was succeeded by his son Al-Hakam. And Caliph Al-Hakam was like in relation to Jews and in relation to minorities and enlightened minorities was like his dad on crack. He really liked Jews and he really encouraged the prospering of science and language and poetry and mathematics and all the good stuff. Al-Hakam was an interesting caliph. After Al-Hakam, from 976 onwards, the Cordovan Caliphate is starting to go into a series of declines that is going to eventually kill it. But for that reign of much of the 10th century, if you were Jewish, that's the place you wanted to be. And I'm here to tell you that on top of everything I've spoken about, there were a few Jews who also made a bit of money. <laughs> it was good geschäft going. So Al-Andalus was the place to be. But I want to concentrate back in Babylonia because we're about to meet really someone who is not merely the towering figure of the 10th century in terms of Jewish history, but really the towering figure of the Ghanic period. And you can't really talk about the Ghanic period in any sensible way without talking about this individual. And so we're going to encounter him now. And make no mistake, we could give probably not just one, but two entire talks just on this individual. So everything I'm saying, I have to contract into headlines because we need to talk about this individual. I want you to go away tonight understanding just how immense this individual is and why people, why people talk about him as synonymous with the Ghanic period because he was the ultimate Ghan. But let me just background for a second. If we go into Babylonia and we look at the two institutions that have defined the Babylonian Ghanic period and the Ghanate generally, and those two institutions were what? Sura and Pumbadita, the two great academies, the heads of which had the title of Gaon. The other institution, of course, being that of the Rej Galuta, the Exilarch, who was always involved in the politics around the Gaonet. But the Ghanic period is defined by these giant intellects and individuals of tremendous stature who sat at the head of these two academies of Sura and Pumbadita. But by the time we get to the early 900s and right up until the 920s, Pumbadita Sura had been undergoing something of a decline. The last really great Gaon of Sura was Amram Gaon, who I had spoken about last week, 
What did he do? What, why do we remember Amram Gaon? Very good. But now, by the 910s, the 920s, Surah was in a bit of a decline. So much so that... Now, it just so happened also around about 920 that there came to the position of Resh Galuta a very important and powerful individual. We don't really, really... Um, know a lot about many of the people who occupied the position of Rej Galuta throughout the 500 year period of the Ghanic. But there are some that we know because of what they did and because of the things they got involved with and because they had very forceful personalities that others wrote about. So we know quite a lot about this individual and that is a guy called David Ben Zakai. Don't get confused. He became the Rej Galuta in round about 920. Remember I'm condensing and I don't want to load with too many details because I want us to understand and also as I said at the very first talk when we look at the Gaonic we are often peering through the mists of time so I want to make sure that what we do talk about are things that historians are fairly agreed on through all the different sources that we have and we have a number of different sources about the 10th century. We even have the writings of people that were there, as well as all sorts of documentations that came in the following century, the Cairo Geniza and all. So we know quite a bit, but I want to stick to what we know. So this guy called David Ben Zakai comes, and he is a fairly... I don't know, I don't know if, it's, if it's possible to imagine someone who would be a Jewish leader who would have quite a... a uh, quite a stubborn and forceful personality uh, and basically find themselves in argumentation with a lot of different people. But David Ben Zakai apparently was of that sort. Always felt he was right and didn't want to hear any other opinion. But he fell out with the Gaon of Pumbadita and the appointment of the Gaon of Pumbadita. At a time when Surah itself was struggling. Now, Surah was struggling for a number of reasons. I, uh, it's difficult to go into this now, but the historians basically will tell you why was Surah was struggling for two basic reasons. One is that they were not able to find people of sufficient caliber. By this time in the 10th century, the populations of Babylonia had already been restless for a while and people, as I will talk about later tonight, people were starting to demographically shift to other centers. So you didn't have that critical mass. It wasn't that easy to find people at the right kind of level. That has a flow-on effect. What happens if you have an institution that struggles to produce impressive people? What is your most difficult thing in the Jewish world, whether in the 10th century or the 21st. If you've got an institution, what's your primary, and you're running one, what's your primary challenge? Fundraising. And to fundraise, you've got to have people of calibre in your show. So Surah started to go into decline, and the other reason is, is because the Abbasids, and over the course of the last century and a half, since the Abbasids came to power, as you would recall, the Abbasids liked to centralize power into Baghdad, and Pumbadita was much closer to Baghdad, was much closer to the center of power, was much closer to the Rej Galuta, and much closer to the Caliph. So you had 
far more ability to attract money and they were still producing very, very high level Gaonim. Although David bin Zakai has an argument about the appointment of the Gaon at Pombadita at precisely the time that Sura is in decline. And one of the reasons is, is because the, he, it was felt that the newly elected Gaon of Pombadita was actually trying to shut down Sura and basically take over the whole show. What the details and subjectivities of that argument were, it's very difficult for us to know. We're speculating. That particular event was resolved ultimately by an extremely interesting individual called, and there's a reason I'm saying this, I'm not here to overload with information, but Nisi Naharwani. Now, Nisi Naharwani, you see, you've got to understand the way that Babylonian Jewry works, and in some ways, all Jewish communities work. You have your big rabbis, yeah? And you have your big political figures, yeah? And you have your big, you know, philanthropist benefactor types, yeah? But every traditional community that has a long and respected history also, from time to time, raises individuals who don't necessarily fit into any of those categories, but they are great scholars, but they are more recognised as holy and saintly people. No one can really categorise them politically. Those types of, they're just holy, like, like Kabbalists and holy dudes. Nisi Naharwani fit, he was at one point the head of the Kala. Remember, anyone remember what the Kala was? Anyone remember what the Kala was? I spoke about it last week or the week before. The Kala was the kind of month-long massive seminar that Sura and Pompadita would have prior to Passover and Rosh Hashanah of each year. During Adar and Elul, everybody would come, thousands of people, tens of thousands would come to the academies to study intensely the program of that year. Uh, whereas during the rest of the year, Surah and Pompadita had scholars, but uh, kind of like a, 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 an administrative full-time scholarly class, whereas people would come. So they always appointed someone to be the head of the Kala, and that was his position, but he was known more as a miracle worker and a holy man. Apparently, Nisi Naharwani had the ability to use divine names to unlock doors and gates. It's a useful tool to have. Just walk along. In one night, apparently, he managed to unlock all the gates of Babylonia. That's what the, they don't even know what that means. Anyway, he made peace. And so eventually, but still, David bin Zakai felt that Surah needed to be propped up. That's the background that's happening to the individual I need to talk to you about, which I'm going to start talking about now. The person that is going to occupy us for the next while, Saadia Gaon, or as he's more extensively known, Saadia ibn Yusuf al-Fayumi. 
Hagaon. And where was Sa'aja ibn Yusuf al-Fayumi from? The Fayum. He was born in Egypt. Sa'aja, I have his feelings going on in Egypt, but really Sa'aja is just a tower of an intellect. But not a tower of an intellect that's born in one of the centers, but really almost like popped out, sprung out in Egypt where whilst there was a community, it's not like it had been recognized as a major center of rabbinics. But by the time he was already 20, he'd written a couple of books. One of those books was a kind of a dictionary called the Agron. And it wasn't really a dictionary so much as a tool for poets because it listed all words in Hebrew in alphabetical order going one way and in rhyming alphabetical order going the other way and was an incredibly interesting lexical device because I can't emphasize enough and we're not going into this too much, a little bit, but in that century, in that time, in that time, poetry is a big deal. Poetry, and if, to, but poets were not simply guys, you know, that put flowers in their hair and sat around and took mushrooms and decided to, you know, I don't know. They were heavily into linguistics and into understanding the mechanics of the language in which they were dealing. And Hebrew has a core textual reservoir of words. And so to create something, to bring all those words together, to arrange them in such a way that they're useful for both, and at the same time, to write poetry that is a consequence of your intense study of that textual tradition is an incredible thing to do. He wrote a poem about every letter of the alphabet, every letter of the alphabet. And in that poem, listen to this, listen to this, just so we know who we're talking about when we're talking about a 20-year-old. In that poem, every line is about a different letter, and he tells you, in that line, cryptically, in, ver in, 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 uh, in, in verse, how many times that letter appears in the Bible. So the Agron was a very impressive linguistic achievement. Do we have a copy of that? We have a copy of the Agron, yeah. But we, but, 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 but the, I don't know if his Shir Shil Otiyot, to be honest. His Shir Shil Otiyot was written at the same time as the Agron. But the Agron was a very, very, it, it, it got him a bit of a name. But he realized that he's not going to be achieving much if he sits around in Egypt. He's got to go somewhere. Where does he need to go? Well, really, he needs to go to Mesopotamia, he needs to go to Babylonia. But on the way, he spends time in Israel. Because remember, Israel is a center. I talked about this last week, that the Palestinian Torah centers had a certain amount of gravitas. There had actually been tensions between them and the Babylonians. 
the Babylonians regarded themselves as far superior in terms of customs and learning and so on. But this was growing in self-importance and he learned there with a few people before making his way to Babylon. Sometime around then, around the early 920s, Sarja was born in 882, so already he's, uh, so already he's, well, he's probably around 30. Some, some opinions think that he was younger, but um, he was probably around 30. And he's in Aleppo, he's kind of in that transitional period when the famous year 922 came along. Now you're going to say to me, why is 922 a famous year in Jewish history? Anyone know why 922 is a famous year in Jewish history? 922 was the only year in which two different dates of Rosh Hashanah were observed. One by <coughs> Babylonia and, the, and all the communities that followed Babylonia, which might have been anywhere, but they all followed Babylonia. <coughs> and one date kept by the land of Israel and all communities that followed that, which would have included many communities in Byzantium. Because the head rabbi of the Jerusalem Academy announced this year Rosh Hashanah will be on Thursday. And the rabbis of Babylonia said, uh, no, it's going to be on Tuesday. This argument had actually started because of an argument that had about that year's or the previous year's Pesach. But when it came to Rosh Hashanah, it was a massive split. And this was more than simply a diversion of opinion. The rab Palestinian rabbis believed that the rabbi, only the rabbis in Israel, regardless of how learned people thought they were in Babylonia, only the rabbis in Israel were given the mandate by Torah to decide on what, on, on the days of the calendar. Well, you can imagine. I mean, when he got his son to stand up on the Mount of Olives and announce that when Rosh Hashanah would be, and that then sent shockwaves right throughout the Jewish world, and the rabbis of Babylonia were rightfully concerned because they felt that he was wrong. And they also felt that politically this was something that was not able to be sustained. Sajigan chose this as his moment to really enter into world history. Because Saadja put his mind and his pen at the service of the Jewish community of Babylonia and its institutions. It's Gaonet and it's Resh Galuta. You can imagine what David ben Zakkai thought about the people in Jerusalem doing that. Saadja Gaon wrote an entire book on the calendar with a complete explanation of the mathematics and the science behind it and showed that the rabbis of Palestine were in error, that the rabbis of Babylonia had the right to determine the calendar, etc, etc. It was a hit. It absolutely crushed the issue. Crushed it.
It'd be like, to that point, the rabbis in Babylonia would be going, uh, and maybe putting out a page or two of pamphlets here and there, and Sa'aja goes, here you go, crushed it. On his way to Babylon. So you can imagine that when he turns up in Babylonia, it's like, you know, Uri Gagarin coming back from space. I mean, it's like, but he's young. He's really young. And he's a foreigner. Now, it might astonish you to know that until that point, no one in the entire history of the Gonic period had become Gaon of either academy who hadn't been born in Babylonia. So they made him an aluf of Pumbadita. Remember what an aluf is? It means you sit in the front row. You're like a deputy Gaon. I mean, they can't do anything less. He's this towering figure. And then David ben Zakai says, well, wait a minute. I'm trying to prop up Surah. So why don't we make Saaja the Gaon of Surah? Oh, wait a minute. The guy's only 30 years old and he's not even from here. But David ben Zakai decided that was going to be the best thing to do. And no one could really argue because five minutes conversation with Saaja and you would realize that you were in the presence of an absolute giant. So, but only one person came to advise David ben Zakai, the Rej Galuta, that maybe making Saaja Gaon was not the best idea. And that person was Nisi Naharwani. Because Nisi Naharwani did it based solely on having met Saja and knowing the Rej Galuta. And he knew that at some point there would be tears before bedtime. Nevertheless, he said, if you are determined to appoint Saaja as the Gaon of Surah, I will support that completely because the man is worthy. But I'm warning you, he has a completely contrary personality to you. Saaja himself was incredibly self-confident. And why wouldn't you be if you're Saaja Gaon? Quite stubborn. A hundred and thousand percent convinced of the convictions of his own mind and that was just going to be inevitable. Nevertheless, for the first few years, everything was cool. Sarja single-handedly rebuilt the reputation and influence of Surah and they sent out fundraisers and they brought monies back and they built it, they renovated it, they built it, they started producing intellectual product Saja wrote some very, very nice materials there against the Karaites. We'll talk about the Karaites in a moment, but the Karaites were growing in influence. Put your hand up if you do not remember who the Karaites were. Put your hand up if you do. The 
Karaites had started in the 700s already under Anan ben David. They are a sect that repudiated the oral Torah. They thought the Talmud was bunk. They only went according to the written Torah. It was a type of Jewish reform movement, literalist reform movement. They were growing in influence until Saja stopped them. But eventually, the inevitable, as foreseen by Nisi Naharwani, happened. And Saadja Gaon and David ben Zakai had a massive falling out that affected the whole of Babylonian Jewry. It was ultimately to do with a particular inheritance case involved that where the, the Resh Galuta told the Gaonim they needed to sign this verdict. And the Gaon of Pombadita signed it. But Sa'adja said he didn't. He wouldn't sign it because he didn't agree with the outcome. He didn't agree with the verdict. He thought it was unjust. So I'm not signing it. David bin Zakai sent his son, who, as we understand it, lost his temper and assaulted Sa'adja Gaon, and then in turn was manhandled by Sa'adja's servants. The whole thing was out of control, and it ended with David bin Zakai sacking Saadja Gaon. Imagine, imagine who you'd have to be to sack Saadja Gaon from the Gaonat of Surah. Saadja wasn't someone to be sacked easily. And what did he do in return? He sacked the Resh Galuta. <laughs> Appointed his brother in his stead. David bin Zakai didn't take that lying down. And what Saadja did not really take into account in this calculation is the fact that who's the Resh Galuta's mate? The Caliph. The David bin Zakai went to the Caliph, Al Kahir at the time, and got the Caliph personally involved to resolve the dispute. And Saadja was removed from Surah and his brother who Saja had placed as Resh Galuta was exiled. These were troubled times for the community of Babylonia but as most historians will tell you the sacking of Saja Gaon was a, fan was a fantastic thing for the Jewish world and probably for Saja himself because it meant that Saja now had a huge amount of time at his disposal in which he could employ his ginormous brain. And there were a number of issues that needed addressing. And perhaps none more so than the very, very pressing intellectual threats and challenges faced by the Jewish world at that time. So he had dealt with the Karaites and was continuing to deal with the Karaites, wrote books in defense of the oral Torah, published pamphlets and books crushing the Karaites, actually stemmed their influence. He dealt in other literature with Hiwi al-Balhi. 100 questions. Correct, excellent. 200 questions on the Torah. A skeptic of mega proportions. This is the 10th century, ladies and gentlemen. We're not talking about some Hazafressing German in the 19th century. We're talking about a guy from Afghanistan in the 10th century who wrote 200 unanswerable questions on the Torah. 
But those things paled into comparison with the intellectual threat that was coming into Judaism from the Kalam. The Kalam, for want of a better word, really uh, can be defined. It's not precisely defined like this, but it can be defined generally as Islamic philosophy. But it's not, that's, that, that doesn't quite tell us what the Kalam was. You see, due to the enlightened attitude of the Abbasids, and certainly the enlightened attitude of the Umayyads over here, Islamic scholars had been spending some time already studying and translating the great works of antiquity, the great philosophical texts, rationalist texts, scientific texts written by the Greeks. Remember I said this was a renaissance of sorts. It was the Arab world, ladies and gentlemen, always remember that, that kept science and philosophy alive when Christian Europe was potsing around in the mud. You understand this? That was the civilized world. Yes, we saw a bit with the Carolingian Empire in the 800s. That was a bit of a renaissance as well. And even they were trying to get these things into Latin and they had to go to the Arabs for them. Because the Muslim world is the one that was studying. But that was having an influence on Islam. And eventually they would come to Jewish scholars and rabbis and spiritual figures with some very, very fundamental questions. Such as, Allah, now that is an incorporeal, indivisible God. Your God Look in your Torah, your God has arms and legs and eyes and walks around, he's a dude. How are you solving this? How are you solving this? How do we solve this? I'm asking you, the audience, how do you solve this? When you open the Bible and it says the hand of God is upon him, the eye of God, how do you solve this? It's metaphorical. How do you know? If you can say that's metaphorical and allegorical, how can you say anything there isn't? But Sarge's real point is, is that nothing in the Torah can contradict reason. The Torah has to be consistent with rationality and reason. And we know philosophically, we know rationally that God is incorporeal. I can't have that thought rationally and then come along and see the hands of God and think, oh, that must be literal. Everything in the Torah must be subject to the overriding parameters of reason. This might seem obvious to us, but it wasn't before Sa'adja. Same with the mitzvot. The mitzvot all have rational reason behind them, whether you can see them or not. Some are clear, some are not. 
Sa'adja also introduced foundational concepts into Jewish philosophy, such as the notion of free will, that God's knowledge of everything, past, future, present and future, is not a cause for our behavior. Therefore, it doesn't deny us our free choice. And everything in the Torah must accord with reason. All of the things that we understand about how to read the Bible come from Sa'adja Gaon. As they even recognized in the Middle Ages, Sa'adja Gaon is the beginning of Jewish rational thinking in terms of trying to weld these two systems of Western thought and Judaism and the Abrahamic religions. Now these Muslims had been doing it already, but Sa'adja brought a unique Jewish perspective on this. He wrote the first great Jewish philosophical work called Emunot V'Deot, the book of, I don't know, beliefs and opinions. Now, Sa'adja also being completely focused on the texts of the Torah, which he felt everything had to be anchored into, because he also wrote some halachic digests, didn't write a full code, but on individual topics he wrote what we might call proto-codes, things that are very close to being a code, but nothing comprehensive, only on individual topics. It was, after all, a gaon. This is what I do. He also wrote a Siddur. He wrote, really formulated the Haggadah. The earliest version that we have of the Haggadah is that which is found in Sa'adja's writings. Sa'adja is a total game changer in Judaism. And he also wrote an entire translation of the Torah into Arabic called the Tafsir, which is used, which has been used as the Arabic translation of the Torah until today. He was the art scroll of the 10th century. Doesn't mean he did not have his intellectual detractors. There were people who argued and disagreed with Sarja, but very few to his face. Eventually, actually, Sarja and the Resh Galuta became reconciled has a nice ending. And Sa'aja became reinstated as the Gaon of Surah. They couldn't not reinstate him as the Gaon of Surah. He was, if, if he started as a giant, by now he'd just gone totally into orbit in terms of his intellectual products and the effect he was having on the Jewish world. Um, and so much so, in fact, that when the Resh Galuta passed away, uh, Sa'adja adopted his own, the Resh Galuta's own grandson and brought him up as his own child. Something else became decided in the 10th century. What do we mean when we say the text of the Torah? What is that? But who decides what it is? Even if we say, oh, well, it's been handed down, it's tradition, da da da, right? Well, who's been responsible for that? And, and, as you famously know, as I'm sure most of this audience knows, the Torah, the text of the Torah contains only consonants. Yes? Doesn't have any vowels in there. So who decides how things are going to be read? 
Well, now you can say, well, what do you mean? Look up in the Chumash, it's all there. Yeah, but who, who, who established that? Where did that text come from? With the fowls and the notes. You know, anyone ever lain? Anyone done a haftarah? Anyone anything like that? Anyone ever done that? So you know that there are notes. So we've got vowels and we've got notes and we've got punctuation. Who did that? Where's that from? The consonants come from Moshe. The voweling and punctuation was invented in the Gaonic period. I'm not talking about the actual pronunciation, but the nikudot, the symbols of it, are a product of the Gaonic period. They used to read it before, but there was no vowel system, diacritical marking system. Okay, 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 okay. So, chalev imo. Yeah? How do I know? So, listen, just listen. How do I know that's Chalev Imo and not Chalav Imo? How do I know? Tradition. Oral tradition. That's passed down. Yep. What if I want to try and preserve that oral tradition? How do I do that in the 10th, in the 9th and 10th centuries when I don't have a tape recorder? Those diacritical marks are an invention of the Gaonic period. But they have to be agreed upon. In other words, just like in Halakha, you can have a variety of opinions on how the Torah is actually meant to be read. Well, I heard from my dad it was like this. Oh, yeah, but my rabbi told me this. Oh, but your rabbi doesn't mean that. Well, what about that rabbi? Do you understand? So someone, this project had to be centralized, like a, building a Torah wiki. And that was carried on in Tiberias, predominantly, two major scholastic houses who created what we now call the Masoretic text. Masoretic. Those two Masoretic from Misora, meaning tradition. Those two houses, the house of Ben Asher and the house of Ben Naftali, were kind of competing, but it was the, and they had the same project going on a bit in Babylon. But one of the decisions made in Babylonia by Sa'aja was that the school of Ben Asher in the land of Israel, they are the ones who possess the definitive Masoretic text. This was a big decision. The last fully written down version of the Ben Asher Masoretic text became what? Physically became what? The Aleppo Codex. The Aleppo Codex is a 10th century Ben Asher edition, copy. The Leningrad Codex, which is the second oldest codex we have, was based a little bit after, but apparently was either seen by Ben Asher or not seen by Ben Asher. Yeah? But once again, we have to realize how important that is. That's of lasting influence, together with its cantillation notes, of how it's supposed to be chanted, how it's supposed to be pronounced. You can't, you can't use it as a Sefer Torah, it's a scholarly document. But now it is kind of like a major, major reference point. Maimonides looked at it and said that's the one, that we're going with that one. Yeah? Those of you who are sufficiently aware to know that in later mystical literature there are many interpretations of the diacritical marks and the musical notations should know that every single 
part of Jewish history is one long revelation and is holy. Just because something is late, even today, doesn't mean it's not valid and important and mystical and cosmic. I need to move on now. If you're going to talk about one person in the 10th century of Jewish history, I'm pretty sure you're going to have to talk about Sarge Gaon. If they tell you you've only got, you only can talk about one person. But if they tell you you can talk about two people, then the second person you would talk about, not that any of these people aren't important and influential, but the second person you would talk about would be the individual I want to talk about now. Having established that there was learning going on in the land of Israel, and in fact, not only in Tiberias would the schools of the Masoretes, Masoretic text worked on by the Masoretes, but also figures like Daniel Al-Kumsi, who was a massive Karaite scholar. This is not the individual we're going to talk about. He's also sitting here, and during the 10th century, he and other colleagues, his colleagues and other scholars, turned Jerusalem into a major Karaite center of scholasticism in Jewish texts and linguistics. And of course, the Karaites were deep into that because it's all about the text for the Karaites. But for them, it's all about how it's interpreted. Uh, the Karaites established a center in Jerusalem, which is going to be really influential for the next couple of centuries of the growth and influence of the Karaite movement. Whether we like the Karaites or we don't like the Karaites, we can't dismiss them as a phenomenon. And they have their moment, they're starting to have their moment in the sun now. They're really producing interesting things. Of course, Saja attacks them, they attack Saja, you don't really understand. And at some level, when you read all this literature, you have to say that at some level, I'm sorry to say this, but I reckon Sarja didn't quite understand what the Karaites were doing. Sarja's argument to the Karaites was something like, look, if you don't have an oral tradition, you're going to have to find one to observe these mitzvot anyway. Because it says, put a mezuzah on your doorpost. What does that even mean if you don't have an oral tradition? So it's not like you're going to do it literally without inventing your own oral tradition. Similarly with any mitzvah. In fact, says Saja, there are words in the Torah that you can't understand, as I have shown in my writings, that you can't understand unless you use the explanations provided in the Mishnah. Which means that the oral Torah must have accompanied the written Torah, because otherwise those words are incomprehensible without the oral Torah, just as words. Let alone the mitzvot, how do you perform them without an oral Torah tradition? But the Karaites would say to Saja, dude, that's the point. That's the point. Every generation creates its own interpretation, its own traditions, its own way of doing things. The Torah gives us a framework. If in our generation we understand a mezuzah as meaning some kind of stone block about four feet high that you stick right next to the doorpost and you write the Ten Commandments on, which is what some Karaites were doing, that's how we understand that commandment. It was a very, very different and fundamental debate going on between Saja and the Karaites. Saja won in the end. Karaism did not overtake the Jewish world and create a new Judaism per se. 
but it's a very delicate argument. There's certain things we take for granted about Judaism today, maybe not in uh, some progressive communities, which come very close to Karaism in some ways, that were still being formulated in the 10th century. Remember, there's no halachic digest. There's no easy one to pay, you know, reference compendium. Now, the second individual you would need to talk about, Chastai Ibn Shaprut. Put your hand up if you've heard of Chastai Ibn Shaprut. Of course. Now, Chastai is born in Spain and he grows up and he becomes, he studies medicine and he becomes a physician. He's a very, very capable, smart, young man. He's not, doesn't go into the world of Torah professionally because it's not really what you did in Al-Andalus. Remember I spoke about that? He's living in a time which is, in a, he's living at the same time as the Abbasid Caliphate, but he's living in the Umayyad, the Cordovan Caliphate. He couldn't have timed his life better to become who he became. Because by the time he's ready to enter the service of the Caliph as a doctor, and most Jewish boys who showed talent and were doctors usually ended up to do something for the Caliph, because the Caliphates generally liked to have doctors doing all sorts of things for them. Um, by the way, something else I want to show you. Something else I want to show you. I f did not mention, I, 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 I forgot to mention this earlier, and it's, it's an important point. When I was talking about the world opening in the 900s, yep, and we talked about the Abbasid Caliphate, and we talked about the Umayyad Caliphate in Al-Andalus, I should also point out that by the time we get to the mid-900s, there is now a third caliphate. And that third caliphate is here. What's that called? The Fatimid Caliphate. And the Fatimid Caliphate over the course of this century is going to go on and even eventually conquer Egypt and even eventually set up its capital in Cairo. And eventually it's going to even take the Levant. So the Fatimid Caliphate is going to become the biggest caliphate, but right now it's more or less contained. The Abbasids still control this, and the Fatimids are more or less confined to North Africa. But it's an important thing to know. Khastai ibn Shaprut comes into the service of the Caliph, Abdul Rahman, and then Al-Hakam, and he's given more and more responsibilities. And the more responsibilities he's given, the better he does with them to the point where he is eventually appointed in charge of all customs and excises in Spain. Caliphs had an interesting way of doing things. They liked physicians, not just as doctors, but they got them to do jobs and run things in government. They thought doctors were clever. So they gave them jobs. They liked their administrative abilities. Hastai was more than clever. He spoke several languages, he was extremely refined, he was extremely clever, and he rose eventually to become, effectively, they didn't, the Umayyad Caliphate didn't term, use the term vizier, but he became effectively the prime minister, the vizier, and most certainly the foreign minister of the Cordovaran Caliphate. And he had almost unlimited resources 
to do what he wanted to do. If you're looking at the golden age of Spain and the basis of that, and when we talk about the golden age of Spain also in the 11th century with the really crowning achievements of Hebrew poetry and Torah learning and so on, but the real material basis of all that is established by Hastai ibn Shaprut. Now Hastai ibn Shaprut, who I've just realized the time, so I'm going to have to reduce this to a few minutes. I can't emphasize enough how important a figure that is. If you're sitting around at a dinner party and they're discussing the 10th century in Al-Andalus, you've got to know who Hastai ibn Shaprut is. The most famous thing about Hastai ibn Shaprut and why his name normally comes up is because it was, it was Hastai ibn Shaprut who first received word that there was a kingdom, a Jewish kingdom, in the Caucasus, which we discussed last week, known as the Khazars. He then sent a letter to the Khazar, the king of the Khazars, which traveled by an enormously extraordinary route using Jewish diplomats and travelers and all sorts of people to eventually get to the Khazars. And eventually he got an answer. So a lot of what, say, Yehud Halevi later on and so on, when he writes the Kuzari and the whole legend of the Khazars that comes down to it, really comes down from the famous letter of Hastai ibn Shaprut. But it's not only the famous thing that he did. He organized all sorts of diplomatic missions on behalf of the Cordovan Caliphate. A very extraordinary thing that he did was basically defuse an entire war that would have engulfed Europe by the way that he was able to explain to the delegation sent by Otto of Germany about how the letters that they wanted to present to the Caliph were not acceptable and would have to be rewritten. This is things you can look it up. They're very famous cases. But Hastai ibn Shaprut also had access to tremendous financial resources and would sponsor people sponsor Torah scholars, sponsor poets, sponsor artists, and really gave rise to the whole uh, game-changing situation that happened in Al-Andalus that led to that golden age of Spanish Jewry under the Cordovan Caliphate and beyond. Everybody follow that? Hasdai ibn Shaprut is extremely important. And while he's doing that, unfortunately, following the death of Sa'aja Gaon, Babylonia is going to go into something of a decline. It's still got some great figures yet to come out of it. We'll discuss in a moment. But it's all about Spain now. It's all, that's the place to be. And not only the place to be, but it's worth being good mates with Hasdai ibn Shaprut. And now I'm going to spend five minutes on something that I think is amazingly interesting. But I do understand that for some of you it may not be. You will find this interesting. Others may not. But I want you just to follow this. Because it's kind of like, I just want someone to write this as a novel because it's too good. Hastai ibn Shaprut had a secretary. A young man called... Menachem Ibn Saruk. Ibn Saruk actually had originally um, been a poet or a linguist and a poet. 
he was compiling a ginormous dictionary that was going to be the definitive Hebrew dictionary. It was actually written in Hebrew, not just in Arabic, but it was written in Hebrew as a Hebrew dictionary called the Machberet. He, 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 he was employed at first and patronized by Chazdai's father. But when Chazdai's father died, he kind of went, had to go back to where he came from in Tortosa and eventually got rehired by Chazdai as a secretary in Cordova. Yeah? So that, and while he's doing that, he's working on the Machberet. Okay? Just laying down that one layer. Very, very impressive scholar. And let's face it, if you're Chasta ibn Shaprut, even your secretary is going to be a serious scholar. And that's going to be Menachem ibn Saruk. Menachem ibn Saruk actually was the composer of the letter to the Khazars, which was complimented by the king of the Khazars on what a beautiful, flowery, amazing Hebrew letter it was. And it had actually been written by Menachem ibn Saruk. At some point, however, Another individual turned up in Al-Andalus. This individual had come from the east. He might have been born in Fez, but he went to Babylonia to get an education and studied under Sa'adji Gaon. And then came to Andalus. And why not? If you are pretty much regarded by everyone you meet as the greatest Hebrew poet of your generation and a phenomenal linguist and you're going to go, where am I going to be appreciated? I know. Cordova. So you turn up and your name is and your name is Dunash Ibn Labrut and you say, hi guys, I'm here. What's going on? And they say, well, we got Menachem ibn Saruk, Hazdai's secretary, he's writing the Machberet. You take a look at the Machberet and you go, meh. That caused a huge rift among scholars and the entire community. They even heard about that rift in Babylonia. Eventually, Menachem ibn Saruk lost his job because Chastai took on Dunash ibn Labrut to be his patron and lavished him with gifts and treated Menachem quite badly and eventually even sacked him. Menachem himself had three students who wrote letters to Chastai and wrote letters to Dunash ibn Labrud defending their teacher. One of those students, sorry, one of those students was Judah or Yehuda ben David Hayui. Now you might say, David, you're going obscure on me. Why are you telling me about Yehuda ben David Hayui? student of Menachem ben Ibn Saruk, who defended his teacher against the accusations of Dunash ibn Labrat that Menachem didn't really understand Hebrew grammar. I'm going to ask you a question. Don't call out. Please don't call out. 
put your hand up if you know the answer. To give others time to think, but also so I can see who knows. How many letters are there in any given Hebrew verb root? I'm asking. Three. We didn't know that. We didn't know that. Until Yehuda ben David Hayui, based on the work of his teacher Menachem ibn Saruk, arrived at the universal laws of Hebrew grammar and broke open the language and the code of Hebrew grammar. Grammar is not a subject that existed in Jewish thought. There's no discussions of grammar in the Talmud. There's no oral tradition of grammar. The rules of Hebrew grammar were discovered in the 10th century. Sa'ad Gaon did not know about three-letter roots. The classical, the classical view was that some roots are three letters, some roots are two letters, and some roots are one. They weren't dealing with quadrilaterals at the time, but you're right, you're right, you're right. Okay, let's add four as well. Yeah, but let's just deal with one, two, and three, three, two, and one. What Menachem ibn Saruk in Colonel, but more particularly his student, Yehuda ibn David Hayui, realized was that once you realize that there are three letters to every single Hebrew root, whether you see those letters or not, suddenly the whole grammar of Hebrew opens up. Because when letters go missing, they impact on other words and other facets of grammar. You have to understand that all this is coming together. The Masoretic text, the principles of Hebrew grammar, this is all the results of some of the incredible disputes and scholastic arguments that were happening, but they were spilling out into communal ideas as well. This is some, I said, it would not interest some of you. Some of you have been sitting there going, I can't believe that he's talking about three-letter verbal roots as being this great. It's a massive idea. Yeah? All Hebrew verbs are three letters, whether you can see those letters or not. Who knows a little bit of Hebrew? Yeah? What's the meaning of the verb lahagia? To arrive. To arrive. What's the shorish? What's the root? The hay is part of the hifil. No, it's nun gimel ayin. Because that root in Pa'al is lingoa, to touch. But in Hifil is lehagia, meaning to cause, to touch, meaning to arrive. Manung. Now, all right. I've got, I've got five minutes to talk about other important things that are happening in the 10th century. If, for example, we say, well, all that's classic stuff, but these places became Torah centers. So there's a very famous legend, which most historians will tell you has some basis in fact, although we're not entirely sure which parts are the fact and which parts are the legend. But four rabbis, some say they came from Babylonia, some say they came from Italy, from, they certainly were in Italy when they set out from Bari to go and collect funds, and they were captured by pirates. Those pirates sold them to Jewish communities for a great price because these rabbis were huge scholars and they all went to different places and established 
different institutions. Yeah? Moshe ben Hanoch went to Cordova. And Hoshiel ben Hananel went to Kirwan in Morocco and established the great Torah centers. And of course, when Moshe ben Hanoch, this great rabbi, turns up, who's going to be his sponsor? Who's going to be his patron? Chastai. Chastai goes, Walla, you're here, fantastic. I'm going to make you the head of the yeshiva. Removes whoever was there before. Puts him in there. I mean, Chasta, you're Chasta, you're doing what you want. Well, apparently, the guy who was removed was quite happy with it because he knew how great a scholar Moshe ben Hanoch was and sets up the great Torah centers that are then going to go and create the Torah centers of Lucena so that in the, following in the following century, you can have the Rif and so on and all these other people. But those Torah centers were started in this amazing legend that is worth mentioning. I have three minutes. I want to cover what just back to Babylonia for a moment because... We're kind of like at the end of the Gaonic period now. The Gaonim are these amazing people. Yeah? And like a fire that is slowly dwindling. What happens when a fire, a flame is slowly dwindling? What, what, is, it, what, is, it, what does it do just before it extinguishes? It flickers. It has, a, it has a final burst. Like a dying sun goes nova before it dies. So at the end of the Gaonic period, we had a blaze of amazing Gaonim. And an amazing person called Sharira Gaon became the Gaon of Pumbadita. And Sharira Gaon writes an extraordinary letter called originally and creatively the letter of Sharira Gaon to the Jewish community of Kerouan who have written to Babylonia even as late as the late 10th century have written to Babylonia to say could you please explain to us what exactly is the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Gaonic period and the whole way this thing developed to today, we don't have a lack of codes. We're thinking about getting some in the next hundred years. But what has been the actual tradition? No one seems to know where all of these things came from and how they were passed down. So Sharira Gaon gives effectively a history of the transmission of Torah of the last thousand years. Showing how the Mishnah was developed, how it transformed into the Gemara, how the Gemara was taken up by the Geonim in Babylonia, and writes a lot of the history that we know, especially about Babylonia, about how these things were passed down, the various Geonim, the various Resh Galutas, and so on. Amazingly important contextualizing document that has inexorably influenced later historians because that is the picture that we have. No, Pirkei is a Mishnahic tractate. That's a whole other thing. Now, it's a thousand years after Pirkei so he's now telling you what's happened since then. He lives for a, to be a hundred. And not a, f a few years before he passed away, he, his son took over as the Gaon of, of Pumbadita, and his son was Rav Hai Gaon. Hi! Also, an enormous scholar and still probably the most prolific Gaon to date in terms of the 
response though that he's sending still to Jewish communities, there is still this sense that we are not quite yet weaned off Babylonia because the communities of North Africa and Al-Andalus and whatever communities existing in Byzantium haven't really yet built up that credibility and that gravitas to be able to stand on their own. And that is why, and of course, the last Gaon of Surah, generally regarded as the last Gaon of Surah, is Shmuel bar Hofni, who was Gaon, who was the last Gaon of Surah. He was actually the father-in-law of Rav Hai Gaon. And given that Rav Hai Gaon also lived to a hundred, that his father-in-law was kind of around at the same time, it's really quite amazing. And one thing that we know about uh, this particular last blast of Gaonim is that they were interested in everything. They write not just about Torah topics and Halakha topics. They're interested in science, they're interested in philosophy, they're interested in mathematics, they're interested in culture. And that, to a large extent, was the influence of Sa'ad Jaga'on. Again, he must have been the towering figure of only a generation before. And therefore, it's extraordinary that Rav Haigaon's life is almost exactly contemporary exactly contemporary with that of Rabbeinu Gershom. Because Rabbeinu Gershom is the first of the great Rishonim of Ashkenaz. The first scholar in Germany, which we haven't really spoken about tonight, who can turn around and say, you don't need to write to Babylonia. I'm here. We're not even sure where he came from, but he brought fully authenticated copies of the Talmud, of halachic responsa. He started enacting decrees that were binding on Ashkenazic Jewry till today. Till today, the whole thing against polygamy, Rabbeinu Gershom. Don't open other people's letters, Rabbeinu Gershom. Yep. Um, instituted laws in relation to divorce, relation to conversion, all sorts of things that are kind of became a hallmark of Ashkenazic Jewry. That is Rabbeinu Gershom. And of course, once you're at Rabbeinu Gershom, then his students, his direct students, are the direct teachers of Rashi, who was born in the year that Rabbeinu Gershom died. So as the sun sets on Babylonia at the end of the Gonic period, it's, it's risen in Andalus and it's rising in Germany and France. So I hope that you can see how much I had to try to communicate in tonight's talk, but I hope that overview of the Gonic period has helped us to uh, come to terms with its significance. I just want to make sure that my notes reflect, because I don't really, my notes reflect what I spoke about. Yeah, pretty much. I don't think we left anything major out. I have, I want to thank you for um, following this, because it's been not an easy thing to have to try and condense its 500 years into three talks and talk about its salient points. But I hope that over time, over the last 500 years, we have managed to understand the transitions of what's going to happen and that it's given you food for thought. Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.